0: For those of you who may not know me, my name is Kyle and I'm a member here and I'm going to be reading the scripture passage for tonight, uh, which is going to be Hebrews chapter 6 verses 11 through 20. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you are free to use one of the black Bibles in front of you, in the pew in front of you. We would just ask that you please return that at the end of the service, uh, as those belong to Christ Church of Arlington, uh, who owns the building. Uh, you can also use your phone or other electronic device. Um, but yeah, uh, so we are, again, a, oh, also, if you need a Bible and would like to take one home, we do have Bibles like this up front uh, in the lobby. You are free to take that as our gift to you. Um, so again, Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 through 20. a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, Kyle. Well, good evening, Doxology. It is good to be with you. Uh, for those of you who are new joining us for the first time, my name is Steve, and really glad you are with us. Uh, we are going through the the Book of Hebrews, and next week we'll do a four week Advent series. So we'll take a little break on Hebrews, kick back up with it uh, at the start of um, at the start of next year yeah, in twenty twenty two. And so, uh, what Hebrews is about? Um, we're saying this each week. So you, if you remember anything from Hebrews, you remember that Hebrews is about you need to persevere, draw near. And do it together. That's what Hebrews is about: to persevere in the faith, because there's a very high chance that you will fall away if you don't make an effort to persevere. But you do that by drawing near to Christ, who's your present help. And you do it. You do that together. And so, what Hebrews does is, you're as you're noticing this, is it alternates back and forth between these hard-hitting passages about you need to persevere, but then following up with here's how you draw near to Christ your present help. And so last week, we looked at one of the heaviest passages on why and how you need to persevere. And because the author is a good pastor, he follows it up this week with another very comforting message. And here's what the essence of today is, is the way you persevere is by drawing near to Christ, your steadfast anchor. Uh, That's the message of tonight, is the way you persevere in life and in the faith more specifically is you draw near to Christ, your steadfast anchor. And uh, there's this quote by one of my favorite fiction authors, Patrick Rothfuss, uh, where the character in one of his books, he says, the day one begins to fret about the future, they leave their childhood behind, right? The day, one, the day one begins to fret about the future, they leave their childhood behind. You see what he's getting? He's getting at, when you're a child, in a sense, you're innocence, um and your idea that life is just always going to work out it it allows you to enjoy life in a way that few adults can, but then there comes a threshold in your life. For some people, it's three, four, or five years old. You know, depending on your household. Uh, for others, it's eighteen, twenty, twenty-two year old, twenty-two years old. But at some point, you cross a threshold where where you realize, wow, life is really unstable, and you begin to fret about the future. Right. And from what I've gathered, I thought you know, anxiety would get better as you age, but from what I can tell in my 30s, I'm more anxious than I was in my 20s, so I don't know. And people who are 60s tell me it just keeps getting worse, so there we go. Um, but why Hebrews is so helpful is because in this passage, God redirects our intuitions about what to do when we're anxious, what, what what to do when we begin to fret, you know, about our circumstances and about tomorrow, and essentially what it tells us to do is to drop the impulse of, you know, because when we start to get anxious, when we start fretting, our inclination is to like, I just need to do what I can to make the anxiety go away, right? Or I need to change my circumstances so that I can feel at peace. But what Hebrews tells us and what God tells us through Hebrews is, actually, yes, managing your circumstances, that does matter, but life is far too complex for you to ever make your anxieties or circumstances align in just the way you want them to be. Instead, what you need, what you most need to do is you need to grab hold of the only sure and steadfast anchor you've got. And that's the message of this text, right? When the storms come and the anxieties come, rather than focusing on just managing circumstances, is grabbing hold of your anchor, okay, the anchor that God gives you. And so we'll see that in two lines in this passage. And so we'll first see, number one, why God must be your anchor, and then number two, why God is your only trustworthy anchor. Okay, so verse number one, why does God have to be your anchor? Okay, why God must be your anchor. And then number two, why is God a trustworthy anchor? Okay, so verse number one, uh, why God must be your anchor. And so let's look at verses 18 and 19. That's the heart of the passage, so we'll start there. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie— we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this, speaking of God's promises to us, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. So the author is writing to the, the Hebrews, right? Um, Hebrew and Gentile Christians, and they're facing real suffering, and so they need more than pious platitudes to help get them through what they're going through. And so what he says is, rather than trying to manage your circumstances, what you need to focus on is grabbing hold of the sure and steadfast anchor you have. Now, this image of an anchor, it's more handy than you may think. Um, I don't know that any of you have a kind of, you know, nautical background. Maybe you do. Uh, but if you don't, you know, you can at least imagine— Going out, say you're going out on a boat to catch some fish to cook for dinner later in the evening. And it's, it's in the afternoon, so you go out onto the, it's a massive lake. You you can't even see the other side. You can't see the, the other shore. So you go out a little bit into the lake, and if you just pull out your fishing rod and start fishing, what's going to happen as the sun begins to set, right? Your boat's going to start to drift, right, to the point where the swirling water could carry out so far out into the lake where you can't see either shore, it gets dark, and, you know, Lord help you if a storm comes. So what happens? If you want your boat to stay secure as the waters are swirling around you, you need to throw down an anchor. Now, what is it that makes an anchor effective? And it's two things you need for an anchor to be effective. First, the anchor has to be connected to you. It has to be committed to you. Okay, so you can throw it down there, and it's solid on the, on the lake floor, but if it's not tethered to your boat, you know, what, what good is it going to do? So first, it has to be connected to you. But number two, think about what the anchor has to do. It has to be able to go into a realm that you can't get to, that's more secure than the swirling water. right? So the anchor, it drops down, it grabs hold of the rocks at the bottom of the ocean, but if the anchor is just floating in the water, it's not going to secure you because it's the water that's the problem. right? So you need an anchor that is committed to you, it's connected to you, but also it can go to a realm that's secure that you can't get to. And if you have those two things, then the anchor security becomes your security. And so pretty quickly we can see why God is really the only reasonable anchor that we have to hold to. Uh, Because first, you know, we need an anchor, you know, that's going to give us security to be committed to us, right? How many of you know people or things that you thought were committed to you and then they turned out not to be? But they don't have to just be committed to you. I mean, by definition, if we cling to anything within the walls of this world, it's akin to grabbing hold of the swirling water, right? And so it's just not going to work. We need something that can go outside the walls of this world to keep us secure. And it's only by clinging to God that we're going to have a sure and steadfast anchor because he's the only one that can do those two things. And so let's think about some just common examples for anchors that we grab a hold of to help us f- feel secure. Uh, I mean, one easy one to come to mind is, is money. Money is— It's devious because it gives the illusion of being able to give you security because in many ways it can. But even if you're, you know, if you have one side of the anchor equation and money is connected to you, it can't go in a realm you can't get to, i.e. it can't protect you from everything that can happen. So it can't protect you from the pain of betrayal, right? From adultery, a divorce, um, some other really significant relational wounding. And even just um, not too long ago, a friend of mine—this is five or six years ago—he was uh, very good with money. And early in his life, I mean, within when he, well, he was still in his twenties, he saved up over a hundred thousand dollars, like in his savings account alone, in addition to other assets. And one day, he, one night, he was driving home, and he got in a horrible car accident. Horrible car accident, and uh, it wasn't his fault. And he ended up in a coma for a couple weeks, and miraculously survived. But what happened was is due to just, you know, the the sheer size of the hospital bills in addition to issues with the insurance is it wiped out all of his assets. So he literally had zero dollars in the bank account. And I remember him telling me, he's like, I really thought that I was going to be okay, you know, given the amount of money I had. And then it was just in a half a heartbeat, my security was stripped away from me. Okay, and so money, it can't be our anchor. Um, What are some other anchors that we go to? Uh, politics, uh, as an, especially living in D.C., is an anchor that we can grab a hold of. And you know, for over 70 years, social commentator, commentators have pointed out that um, as the West becomes more and more secular, and secularism sh- like tries to strip away any kind of sacred order or religion, eventually what it would lead to is a crisis of meaning, where even with you know non-religious people, it would th- it would slingshot them back into a religious impulse. Where we have to grab hold of something in the here and now and assign it religious value. Essentially, like give something the weight of a deity. And for many in our nation now, today, what I mean, whether it's in the church or outside the church, it's politics. And that's it's not the only reason, but it's certainly one reason why we're seeing so much polarization is because I mean, when it is your God, when it is your anchor, right, then you're gonna have a kind of religious zealotry and how you think about it, and how you talk about it. And so politics matters. I know a number of you work in politics. I'm so grateful for that. But for us as believers, we have to think about, okay, if even if I'm, quote, right, but I'm communicating with someone or thinking about someone in a wrong manner, you know, without compassion, without humility, without actually listening and giving empathy, then maybe politics is my anchor, right? Rather than Christ himself. Another common anchor is people, where we look to a friend or a spouse or a spouse we wish we had, you know, to give us some kind of security that we're looking for in that person. And I I came across an article in The New Yorker, uh, it was titled, Glennon Doyle's um, "Glennon Doyle's Honesty Gospel," I believe was the name of the article, and it was written by uh, Ariel Levy. And uh, the author uh, isn't a believer, in so far as I could tell. Yeah, Glennon Doyle's Honesty Gospel, and so Glennon Doyle. I wasn't very familiar with her until I read the article, but it was it was very helpful because it was essentially a retrospective on Glennon Doyle's life. Who's a very famous individual, and she's even more doubly famous now because she's married to uh, Abby Wambach, who played on the U.S. Uh, women's National Team. And so they're very, they're a popular couple, and this article was going through Glennon Doyle's life because she's written three memoirs. Most people only write one, but she's written three. Basically going through like three different phases in her life. And, uh, Doyle's just, she's a helpful figure to look at because she's emblematic of the kinds of voice, of the kind of voice that's influencing our culture a lot. Um, you know, the, the kind of message was like, what's most important is that you, like, find your inner truth and desires and give full expression to that. And, uh, in the article, uh, Ariel Levy, she quotes Glenn, Glenn, Glennon Doyle talking about the first time she met her now wife, Abby Wombach. And and here's, here's what she says uh, the first time uh, Doyle saw Wombach. She says, Suddenly, a woman is standing where nothingness used to be. She takes up the entire doorway, the entire room, the entire universe. I stare at her and take inventory of my entire life, my whole being says, there she is. And that is the language of an anchor, right? In Doyle's story, Abby is the messianic figure. Now, Abby may be a wonderful person, um, and from what I can tell, she is, but no human being can bear that kind of weight, right? Where you essentially put on them the role of savior, in your life, even if they're committed to you, I mean, eventually they disappoint, but they certainly can't go to the realm you can't get to. They can't heal your deepest wounds, wounds. They certainly can't give you life eternal. And this isn't a, a knock on Glennon Doyle. I mean, for all of us, like we have that person or that fantasy of a person or that thing where we can just say, you know, if, if I can see that come into the doorway for me, then I know I'll be secure and I know I'll be okay. Okay, But a person can't bear that weight. And so finally, some of us say, well, yeah, I don't put my trust in money or politics or people. I trust myself because I do know people let me down. I do know politics is going to let me down. And that can work for a while. But you ever notice people who are highly successful and essentially they themselves are their anchor? They're not typically good with relationships because you have to keep a lot of walls up to not let people in, right? And yet you may be generous toward the people in your innermost circle, but it, it, in a sense, it kills your humanity to make yourself your anchor, right? Because you have to keep yourself protected from a lot of other people, and it can dehumanize you in a way, and it's not, it's not going to allow you to benefit as many people as possible. And so so what do we do? Okay, notice again um, Doyle's very honest assessment. Suddenly, a woman is standing where nothingness used to be. She takes up the entire doorway, the entire universe. I stare at her and take inventory my entire life. My whole being says, there she is. You notice that's exactly how we're invited to approach Christ. To see him and to say, there he is. To be invited into the splendor of his presence and take inventory of our entire lives. To see him where nothingness used to be. And to see him in his unapproachable glory as taking up the entire universe. He's the only one who can be an anchor for us, okay? So he must be an anchor. And so the next inevitable question is, is he a trustworthy anchor? Because it's one thing to say, you know, i you may know some very powerful people, but are they trustworthy? And that's often a question we have with God, because it's like, okay, you have all these promises, and are you, you might be powerful enough to be my anchor, but are you trustworthy for it? And so that's point two. Here's, here's where we see why God is the only trustworthy anchor. And here's the first thing we see. Uh, first we see in verse 17, God is trustworthy because he's unchanging in his purpose. Verse 17 Uh, So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Okay, so here's time out his promise made to Abraham. We'll get to that in a minute. But God is unchanging in his purpose. Do you know any fickle people? Uh, In one of my old jobs, my boss was one of those people who loved to chase any shiny object that came their way. And so, you know, they get the staff team together and they say, okay, here's what we're going to focus on, you know, for the next, like, foreseeable future. So I need you guys to build this out and build these systems. So we'd work really hard on it. And then, you know, sometimes four weeks later, sometimes three months later, they'd pull us back in for a staff meeting. They'd say, actually, scrap that. We're going to go this way now. I'd be like, ugh. You're like, all my work is now in the trash can. And, you know, as an employee, your job is to serve the mission of the company. So, you know, you, you can go with it, but it can be frustrating when you're in a relationship with a fickle person. And perhaps more poignantly, if that relationship is a is an intimate relationship, it can be very painful to be in a relationship with a fickle person where you just don't know what you're going to get in any given moment, right? Or someone who promised they would be there for you and now they're not. But God is unchanging in his purpose. He can't change in his purpose. It's not in his essence even if it only benefits you and doesn't benefit him, God will hold fast to his purpose. To give you a present help in time of need. To give you other people in the church to help carry you when you're going through suffering. To make you a real impact in the lives of other people and ultimately to fully transform you into the image of Jesus and wipe every tear away. That's his purpose. And he will not, he cannot waver from it. So he's unchanging in his purpose. And then second, what do we see? He's unchanging in his promises. So let's continue. Uh, he desired to show more convincingly part way through verse 17, the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie. You know, there have been so many times where someone's, and even, where I, I'm sure I've done this to other people, where somebody makes a promise, but then there comes a point where they break the promise, and when you ask them about it, the answer is something to the effect of, well, circumstances changed. And I could no longer, even if I wanted to, I couldn't follow through on my promise. It is impossible for God to lie. And so when he gives you these promises to redeem you and to make you whole, he can't waver from it. And so we get to this point, and I think one of two things happens. One is we say, okay, that's great that God is perfect in his character, but the problem is I'm not. And so how is it possible for somebody to love someone who's constantly so unlovable? Right, so that's one doubt we have. The other doubt is, okay, that's great, you know, God's unchanging in his purpose, unchanging in his promises, but my life certainly doesn't feel like it. There's a lot of things I want that I'm not getting right now. And so, you know, words are great, talk, 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 but I need a deed. I need something tangible that I can hold on to to know that God's actually a steadfast anchor if I'm going to trust him. And the author knows this, and so that's why he embeds these promises in the story of Abraham. So notice the language of Abraham spread throughout. So verse 13. When God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. And so why the author says this, and notice in verse 17, God says, "I'm going to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise? That's you and me. So even when God was making this promise to Abraham, it wasn't just for Abraham. It was for you and me here tonight. And so here's what's going on. The author's referring to the narrative of Abraham, specifically the sections uh, chapter 12 to 22. And what happens is Abraham's 75 years old, and God comes to him, and he doesn't have any children. And he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you and Sarah the home you've always dreamed of, and I'm going to give you your first child through whom you know that child will bless the nations. And so Abraham and Sarah say, okay. So they leave their families, they go to where God calls them to go, but decades go by. See how it says uh, Abraham had to patiently wait, both in verse 15 and then verse 12. He had to patiently wait. And so they get to the point where decades have gone by. And finally, you know, Sarah is telling Abraham what you and I think all the time. She, she, over and over, she's like, Abraham, you have ruined your life. You've ruined our lives because you decided to trust God. You ever feel that way? And so Abraham, in chapter 15, what he does is he goes to God and he, he asks God a question. He says, God, you've made these promises, but how do I know? How do I know you take care of me? How do I know that everything's going to be okay? And if I was God, which is why it's good that I'm not, I would have responded probably with like, don't you take that tone with me? You know, like, just be patient. But God doesn't do that. What he does is unbelievable. So in response to Abraham's question, how do I know? God says, Abraham, I want you to go take, I want you to go get some rams, some goats, some animals, and I want you to kill them, divide them in two, and put them on either side of an aisleway so it makes a path. And you say, well, that sounds really barbaric. But here's what God's doing. Uh, he's contextually communicating to Abraham because in ancient times, especially in the ancient Near East, what this was was this was an oath-making ceremony where you get two animals split in two on either side, and you make your oath, and as you walk through the pieces, you make your promise. And what you're saying is, If I don't follow through with my end of the bargain, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. I think that's just food for thought. I think it's a much more effective way than DocuSign to make a contract. Okay, so you you walk through the pieces, right? If I break my end of the bargain, may what happened to these animals happen to me. And then God does something even more astounding. So he makes a heavy darkness fall upon the area where they are, and Abraham goes into his sleep. And God walks through the pieces, and he says, I will give you a home that you've always dreamed of. I will give you a child through whom the nations will be blessed. I will keep my promise to you. So he's making the oath, but then in addition to that, by making Abraham fall asleep, what happens is, Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces. And because Abraham doesn't walk through the pieces, what this means is God's saying, he's not just saying, if I don't keep my end of the deal... May I be torn in two? But he's saying, if you don't keep your end of the deal, I'll become killable. I'll become torn off from the land of the living. And Abraham couldn't have known how far God would go to keep that promise. But sure enough, in Mark chapter fifteen, verse thirty-three we again see a heavy darkness fall over the land so dreadful that it blotted out the sun as Jesus Christ cried out in agony as he, as Isaiah 53 says, as he was cut off from the land of the living. What was keeping Jesus there? Was it weakness? Was it fear? It was his oath. God cannot lie. And so if he makes an oath to you, and he has, it's binding, it's unvarying, and it's not contingent on the character or the the circumstances of the recipient. And this is the anchor that you need. The one in whom his greatest hour of terror kept his promise to you, even though it meant losing everything. So that for you, while you, may fa- while, while you may fall down, you won't fall away. And while your life may become unsteady, it won't crumble completely. Because God's oath to you and his commitment to you isn't contingent on your commitment to him, but his oath to you, and his is unfailing. And if you don't think he's trustworthy after that, I don't know what else he could do to tell you that he's trustworthy. And so some reflections as we close, as we think about God's incredible, unbreaking promise to us. Um, an inevitable application is to think about, you know, what anchors are you holding to? People, money, politics, yourself, whatever it may be. And cling hold to Christ, that's certainly an application. In- I, I need to do that. I encourage you to do it. But this text is mainly encouragement. And so I always want to try to follow the mood of the text and so let's end with a couple of encouragements. Um, first is, uh, for those of you who, you know, maybe you wonder like, oh gosh, I always feel like every day I'm, I'm not clinging to God as my anchor, as I should. And something that may be encouraging to you. If you have your Bible, look back at verse 10. Uh, it leads right up into this section. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. The love you've shown for God's name in serving the saints, i.e., you don't know if God's your anchor in a vacuum. You always know if God's your anchor through your actions. And so for, I mean, so many of you in here, if not all of you, you can have so much assurance. So many of you in here serve the body of Christ with so much sacrifice. And when you, and that's, that's what it says, right? The love you've shown for serving the saints shows the, the love that you have for God. So if you are loving God's people, that is a, an indicator that God is your anchor, I know a lot of you all the time do as much as you can to tell other people in your life about the good news of Jesus, even though it may mean someone someone thinking you're weird or a temporary rejection of you. That is an indicator that God is your anchor. So many of you guys give so generously with your money to support the mission of the church as well as other mercy ministries. And if you're giving generously, that is a sign that God, not money, is your anchor. And so you can, take, you can have so much confidence just knowing that, I mean, your actions can't redeem you, but they are a, a true indicator that you have clinged on to Christ, your present help. Okay, so that's the first thing. Just take some encouragement. Where are you saying God's fruit in your life? And that's a sign that, that he is your anchor. And number two, especially for those of you who maybe just feel beaten down by the wear and tear of life, um, or maybe you're in a period of suffering, and you say, this is still really hard for me to believe because I have so many unmet longings that God hasn't given me. And notice what the author says in verse 9. We're, we, in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. In other words, God never promises that you're going to have every longing you want in this life, what he's promised you is belonging into, into his family and full redemption at the end of all things, which, which we talked about earlier. And so you can't look at your life, because often it's easy to look at the testimony of your life and view that as the indicator of God's faithfulness to you. You have to look at what we just talked about and God keeping his oath to you, past, present, and future. And you say, oh, that's still kind of cold comfort. Not really. And God showed me a picture of this this morning. Um, so this morning I went to another church uh for worship service. Don't worry I'm not job searching. Um although some of you are like I wish you were job searching. Uh and so uh, I was there just to to help fill in for uh, one of their one of their pastors who potentially wasn't going to be able to, to preach this morning. And it was great. So it was a, it was a it was a bigger church so there there were a lot of people there. And that that's relevant to the story because there are all these people around and during worship, you know, we're saying this is the first worship set, and I'm sitting, I'm standing near the front, and I see there's a young lady in her probably late teens, 20-ish years old. She's in the front, and, you know, she, she's doing sign language, looking out into the congregation. I was like, oh, well, that's really neat. I wonder who she's there for. And I, I looked across the aisle, and there in the front row uh, was another young girl, probably in her early teens, and she was in a wheelchair. Uh, it was pretty clear she can't walk on her own. And she's deaf. And yet that girl in the wheelchair was smiling and tears were coming down her face. And what was going on there? In her own strength, she wasn't able to access the glory that was taking place. Right? The beautiful melodies, the words that were being sung. But what happened was is she had a mediator right, in the front, who is so committed to her, as if she was the only person in the room. And through her mediator, she was able to grab hold of that glory that was offered her. And so, you know, f- for her, who I think is suffering probably more than most of us in here, does someone like that, you know, the, the Christ figure in this story, is of course the mediator giving her access to God's promises Do you think she appreciates the promise of the gospel more than someone who's lived a charmed life all the way through? I think so. When she finally sets foot on the hills of the new earth and for the first time she can hear and she she can hear Christ say, welcome home, do you think that will mean something Precious to her? I think so. And she was such an incredible model to me of something I so often forget. That I too am in, I mean her sign of physical need was the sign of my spiritual need for Christ. I don't have the strength to do life and even as I'm fretting about the future to do life on my own. But I'm in union with someone who is. And so the message of this passage for you and for me is to put yourself in this young lady's position to see yourself as needy and to cling hold of the joy that's been offered you because he's not just a thing, he's a person. He hasn't just given you a word, he's given you a deed. And he has everything you need to see you through. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we do have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, and I pray that you will empower all of us here to uh, grab hold of you as the only one who can deliver on the things we long for the most, and I pray that you will uh, tonight encourage uh, the faint-hearted and help the weak, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.